This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. Tonight I want to talk to you about, uh, as we continue on the study of the divided states of America, I want to talk about the slide of morality. Okay, um, I'll ask you a question. Have you seen morality change in your lifetime? A little bit, possibly. Um, the... Uh, and, and age withstanding, okay, it doesn't matter how old you are, we have seen it all in our lifetimes. Just the last five to ten years have been remarkable, the slide that happens. Uh, and typically you don't slide back towards truth, right? Uh, but yet the slide, how it continues to happen. Uh, our culture changes the standard of what is acceptable by the year. Uh, it used to be, I'd say, by the decade or by the century, but now it seems like by the year. It's something new. It continues to change and continues to adapt. And as our culture moves further from biblical morality, the church must clarify the ideal and define our approach. And what I mean by that is we've got to clarify what the ideal is. What are we after? What is biblical morality? What's biblical ethics? What does a follower of Jesus Christ look like? And we also have to define our approach about how do we go about doing that. Because... Um, while I think that God uses a lot of different things to, to, uh, to cause good stuff to happen in this world, if we put all of our hope into a system, a political system, we are going to be let down, right? Even the best of systems, the best of people, we will be let down. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to say, well, that means are we not supposed to vote, not supposed to get involved. No, it just means that But if that doesn't go our way, if it doesn't go the way that you hope it does, what is the approach? So um, I want to talk uh, tonight, start off with the claims of postmodernism. Uh, that's something that uh, I would say the later half of the 20th century uh, would be called the postmodern times for many of you. Uh, growing up in the modern times where there were a certain amount of ethics and morals that were somewhat accepted. That is no longer the case anymore. And so postmodernism, also referred to as relativism, is the notion that there is no absolute truth, Right? So two different terms that are often used, postmodernism or also relativism. So postmodernism, once again, saying after modernism, after the time of modernism, and it's relativism saying this, everything is kind of relative and truth is kind of subject to whatever you think. There is no absolute truth. Now, underneath that, you see how I will typically respond to someone, especially when I worked on a university campus at Lander University. Uh, there was a very much so of, okay, you may teach the Bible, but you need to know this, that the Bible is just a claim to truth, but there is no absolute truth. This is what I would typically respond. So you mean to tell me there is no absolute truth? Well, is that statement absolutely true? Well, okay, I see what you're doing there, but I'm just saying there is no absolute truth. So do you mean that absolutely, truly? Well, okay, and then I'll say it another way. All truth is relative. Apparently, all truths are relative except when it comes to that specific phrase. So you want every other phrase in the world to be relative except for what you just said to me. Is, is that what you're telling me? No, no, no. This, this is what, what postmodernism or relativism is all about. Here's the quote. That might be true for you, but not for me. Can I say that about your statement just now? Because <laughs> you're saying, okay, you have these Christian beliefs, so that may be true for you, but not for me. Well, I'll say that about your statement. I actually think there's something called objective truth. <laughs> it's right or it's wrong. There is a standard, and it's above all of us. I, I can still believe that way. Uh, then I love this phrase when people will throw this. Well, you ought not to challenge someone else's belief is in reality a challenge of someone's belief. Because I believe that Jesus Christ is the best thing in the world. 
And if you don't have them, I want to introduce you to them. And you can reject them, but on my conscience, I want to tell you about them. Now, that means that I'm going to challenge your beliefs, possibly. And if I ought not to do it, guess what? You are now challenging my beliefs. You see how this works? It is completely insane, the amount of ways that people argue through this. In fact, I have encouraged college students, and I I won't take credit for it. I heard it from somebody else, but um, I think it's a really good approach. If someone tells you that all truth is relative, there is no absolute truth, and this is what you do, you go steal their car keys from them. Just go take them. Just, all right, take their car keys and say, I'm going to go take your car, and I go, what? You can't do that. That's my car. Well, it's true for me right now that I want your car, and I think it's good, better for me to have it. You can't do that. Why? Because that's not right. On whose standard is it not right? It's right on my standard. Your car's better than me. I think I'm better than you, so therefore I should have your car. I'll give you my car, and I'll just take your car. You can't do that. That's not right. According to whose standard? You're applying to some standard above what you think or I think. Whose standard is that? Well, there then they have to define what it is. Well, it's just common decency. Really? Well, where does that come from? Common decency. Where, where does that... See, we apply to a standard when we want to. It's kind of like the whole, let's be honest with all, all the different stuff of people who are calling for defund the police all typically will have the opportunity to call the police if they're in trouble, right? I would rather be able to call the police when I need help rather than be on my own to defend myself, right? I, I would rather have that authority that they'd be able to come alongside and help me. Now, folks, in any system, is there abuse and distortions and things that are tragic? Yeah. But you can't throw out the entire system because of some loose cannons. It's, it's like we live in a time of extremism, especially in this last year. I loved how people would take, um, let me say this carefully, y'all, y'all follow along with me. Um, are there bad police officers out there, yes or no? Yes. Does that mean that all police officers are bad? No. no. Um, were all protesters evil in their intentions? No. Were some of them? Yes. And they're the ones who normally made the news. Uh, Let's even go a little further. Um, Most Christians, I would say, are dangerously aware of Islam, and most of the Muslims you hear about are the ones that blow up stuff. Right? They're the ones who make the news. Now, while I don't think that Muslims believe the truth, I also don't think that terrorists are the ideal, typical Muslim that I know either. But yet we see the extremes, and we go, that, that lumps everybody in the category, right? So all police are bad. All protesters are bad. All this kind of stuff. And I would, this is the comment that somebody was you know, telling me. I said, do you happen to know the name Joel Osteen? And they said, yeah, I know about him. I said, do you think that his standard of living is what is applied to every other American pastor? No. And I said, so you mean to tell me that I don't live like he lives? Like, I'm pr- pr- pretty sure you don't. Well, if you wouldn't apply what Joel Osteen does to every pastor in America, then don't apply that standard to every police officer or every protester or every Republican or every Democrat. Be very careful. See, we have this, this thing where we, we, we think that there is no absolute truth, but yet we want to make absolute claims upon what we believe. Not only is this type of thinking religiously offensive, but it is rationally absurd. And when I say the type of thinking is religiously offensive, um, If all truths are relative and everybody has their own claim to God and you can't make one claim versus somebody else, you know how offensive it would be to go to a group of Jewish people and say this, hey, I know that you believe this, but basically what you believe doesn't matter. You're a Christian anyway. They go, "Uh, no, I don't think Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, well, 
it may not be true for you, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's true for me, and, and so therefore it's got to be true for like that's It doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work for someone to say to a, a Muslim that it doesn't matter what you believe, it, and, you, know, you think salvation is this way, and, and the Hindu thinks salvation is this way, and it doesn't matter what you believe, you can get there anyway. It, it's completely religiously offensive, but it's rashly absurd. It does not work as much as it doesn't me taking your car keys afterwards, which, by the way, everybody's going to be like, I'm getting the car quick tonight. Um, but we think through that, right? But, but here's what we do. We substitute God's eternal truth for our temporal opinion. We substitute God's eternal truth for our temporal opinion. This book has been around longer than you or I, and it's going to probably last a little bit longer than our lifetime. According to Isaiah 48, it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands, what? Forever. It, it doesn't need a claim or an updated rever- uh, version of it. Isn't it remarkable that the Bible can actually work in every culture of the world at every history point of time? I mean, um, think about any other book in your house. Can it do that? You might have a manual that tells you how to use your technological device that's the most challenging Go and put that over in the country of Niger 200 years ago. They might have the book. Is it going to make any sense to them? No. <laughs> no clue. Not, it, it wouldn't even, they wouldn't even understand it. Even if it was in their language, they couldn't get it. Why? But yet the Bible speaks throughout all times, and yet we want to substitute God's eternal truth for our temporal opinion, saying, okay, well, there may be, okay, people would say that this is truth, but we think ultimately, like Adam and Eve in the garden were seduced by Satan, are you sure God said are you sure God said that? And the ability for one is to change. Now, the evidence of Scripture is very clear, and I wanted to kind of highlight a few points tonight as we walk through this. As mentioned in Genesis 3.1, when the serpent comes up to Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the first thing he does is trying to get them to doubt God's what? Word. Same practice he does today, folks. Are you sure? God said. It's 2020. Um, God's standards on ethics and morality and sexuality and gender and what is right and appropriate, that was for back then. We've evolved. We, we've, we've gotten better. If you look around the world today, are we getting better? <laughs> We're not getting better. Um, and so he said to the woman, did God actually say he's causing him to, to doubt what God said? But then even look at the statement that he says there and really unpack it. There is a word that he adds into what God had originally said. Any. Did God ever say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? He said eat from all of them except for that one. Eat from all of them. And what does Satan do? Gosh, he must be so rough on you. Doesn't trust you enough. He didn't want you to eat from any tree of the garden. And Eve goes into it. She's like, huh, can't even eat it. Can't even touch it. Did God say you couldn't touch the tree? Never once did he ever say you can't touch a tree. He's not really concerned about that. Exaggeration. God's holding something back from us. We need the authority to make what's right. We need to choose what we need to do here. And so this challenge comes up. From Satan in the beginning of time, did God actually say? Folks, every argument on the political landscape as it does with morality is this question. Did God actually say? 
Does God have something to say about the unborn? Does God have something to say about gender? Does God have something to say about sexuality? Does God have something to say about hard work and ethics and respect and honor and made in his image? Does God have something to say about race and equality? Yes, yes, yes. He says something about all of those things. And so he goes, eh, did he actually say something about it? I mean, is that really God's word today? Or what was, what was the temptation that they would take from the tree? And it's not like that the tree represented like, oh, those are the really good apples or really good mangoes or whatever the fruit was in there, right? It was you want the ability to choose what is right and what's wrong. That was the original temptation. It's the same temptation today. For people to say, instead of what God says, I want to do what I want to do. The book of Judges is a train wreck put to a text, right? Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it is literally, I mean, it's just one train wreck after the next. There's a cycle that goes on. Uh, four words that all start with S. Um, sin, suffering, supplication, salvation. Sin, suffering, supplication, salvation. The people sinned, got in trouble. God sent an enemy nation to come in, and they began to have suffering. And they suffered so bad that one day they, had, they offer up supplication. They prayed to God, God, help us out, please. And God would send them a judge, and there would be salvation through the judge. And they'd kick out those enemies, and they'd get comfortable, and then they'd start sinning again. The cycle went over and over and over. And Judges, the end of it, summarizes it this well. In those days, there was no king, no authority, except for yourself. You're the authority. And so what was everyone doing? What was right in his own eyes? Um, if you were to ask, um, you know, if you were to go to, say, a preschool and ask those children, what is right in your eyes? Well, you hit somebody over the head if they take your toy away, right? <laughs> you steal their, their snack because that looks better than you, right? This, it's a land of preschoolers. That's what we're living in today. It's what's right in your eyes. What, what do you feel like is right? And so this is where nowadays we have people that respond in certain ways. I know God's word says that, but. I know it used to be this way, but. I know this way, but I've always felt this way. I did what's right in my own eyes. And so in so many of the culture's uh, arguments that we have about different sins, here's the thing that I want everyone to, to realize that I've sat down and I've talked with different people, especially people who say to me, Pastor, I know that the Bible may say that that's wrong, but he made me this way. He made me feel this way, think this way, want to act on these desires. And I would say to them, if I acted on every desire that I've had since birth, I would be in jail right now. Is that fair? Now, folks, you go, what desires? Y'all have driven on this road, right? Okay, y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? If you acted on every single desire that came in your life, folks, what would happen to you? Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's right, and it definitely doesn't mean it's from God. Yeah, but I've felt this way for a long time. Let me ask you a question. Um, especially those of you, if you had more than one child in your house growing up, did you raise those children with the same values, same discipline structures, same parents, same situations, same church, and they ended up buried differently? Some of you even notice within a couple of years, you go, that one's different, Okay. <laughs> We did that right there, and that one responded to that discipline, but this one doesn't respond to that discipline. We got to change, right? And then this one does same values, same. And go, why are they coming out the womb just like just different, right? 
This is what Psalm 51 says. David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. We're all born in sin, right? Original sin. We come into the world sinning. And if you've ever had a child in your house, you know, nobody has to teach them to sin, right? No one has to teach them. We know. But this is what also is unique. I believe while we're all prone to wander, we're all prone to wander in different ways. Sin is in every single person, but it manifests itself in different ways. Um, when uh, me and the boys went to Overcomer Center last year, uh, or I guess the beginning of this year, when uh, Super Bowl was on, let me tell you what happens when you're in, uh, in Overcomers there, as they've been coming back to church and whatnot, hopefully they're, they're wanting to come back on Sunday night, but they're trying to get everything kind of situated. When you have a group of 70 men in a room watching the Super Bowl, and me and my two boys are sitting there watching. You want to know what happens in that room as these men who are going through rehab when a Budweiser commercial comes on? You feel it in the room. It's joking. Ah, and I remember one time the boys said, what just happened? And I said, watch this. And as we're watching this Budweiser commercial, whatever it was, um, I've, I've never struggled with the temptation of alcohol, Okay. I struggle with a lot of stuff. That's never been one of my deals, okay? In that room at that moment, it was as if you could feel it. It hit them. And they thought, here it is again. Oh, come on. I'm making and just, just the commercial, just the bottle. And it just it starts coming up. One guy literally says, ha, 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 real funny commercial. Yeah, Budweiser, real funny to talk about how good alcohol is. And they don't ever show you this side of it where you've lost your family and you're sitting in a home with 70 other guys watching the Super Bowl because you can't be near your family. Ha, 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 Budweiser. <laughs> there, there's reality for you, right? Now I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there going like, that commercial didn't hit me that way, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it didn't phase me. Why? Alcohol's never been my thing. I've never struggled with it. I've struggled with sin since day one, but it manifests itself different temptations, different ways, right? And so what takes place is with those, for a lot of those guys, that has been that sin that so easily entangles them is what Hebrews 12.1 says, right? Easily entangles them. And, and it, that's not the one that entangles me. It may not be the one that entangles you. You have anybody in your family that's more prone to temper than someone else, right? I know we can all get mad, but some of you can get real mad, right? Okay. And, and just why, why is that? Well, we're just we're prone to wander in different ways. And so what takes place if I do what's right in my eyes and you do what's right in your eyes and you do what's right in your eyes? You know what you come up with? The United States of America <laughs> in 2020. That's where we are. Do whatever's right in your own eyes and defend it. And why? Because there is no absolute truth anymore. You can't say what the standard is. Judges describes this very well. You go on throughout the biblical narrative, and what do you find? Jeremiah the prophet says this in chapter 6, verse 15, about God's people. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They forgot how to blush. They sinned, and it didn't even embarrass them anymore. They forgot how to blush. Now, is that not characteristic of where we're living today, folks? It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to champion it as if it's normative right and it doesn't even bother you anymore um some in this room may know and some of you've been involved at different levels and some of you may have just heard about it but even with our church having a partnership with say piedmont women's center uh there are some people in our church who will even go around that area and on certain days of the week 
will be there across the abortion clinic to either hold up signs, be there for prayer for different things. If you're not aware that there are certain families who've come to protest the group that's protesting or trying to against the abortion clinic, and what some of these adults have started doing is that they're dressing up their children as little devils to run around the group and try to uh, be hostile to the people there that are there for prayer. Dress your children up as devils to support the abortion movement. This is Greenville, South Carolina, by the way. Now, they're upset that people are protesting what they're about, so they just, okay, you think we're devils? We'll own it. Forgotten how to blush. Doesn't even bother them anymore. Doesn't bother them anymore. It's kind of that few weeks ago when I talked about, um, for some of our media consumption, when I have a young person come up to me and say, do you think this movie's okay for me to watch? Would you watch it with me? Oh, uh uh I wouldn't watch it with you. Why? Because you're my pastor, and God Almighty is sitting there beside you. You've forgotten how to blush. There, there's, no, there's no standard anymore. And, and so when we start doing what's right in our own eyes, we get to a certain place where we don't even know how to blush anymore, and we don't even, we're not even frustrated with what God's Word says is truth. Um, Ezekiel 28.17, I believe, is a spoken of of what happened when Satan fell as an angel from heaven. And what's interesting about it is it says this, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You walked away from what you knew was right because of what you wanted to do. What you felt like making yourself look great and glorious. So Jesus, speaking to that nature, looked at a group of people one day and said, you are of your father, the devil. He said this to religious people, by the way. He was always making new friends wherever he went. Okay. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's what you're after, religious people. That's what he says next. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in them. So you've got to characterize Satan's work as someone who says there is no what? Truth. Do whatever you want to do. No truth, no standard, nothing I have to worry about. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is the picture and the descriptor of Satan? He has no standard of truth. He makes it up on his own. He, has, he does whatever he wants to do. He is the father of lies. And so we come to a time when the early church was being born and see if this sounds familiar to anyone. As Paul warned his young pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Are we there? So what are we going to do? Oh, he tells you. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They're looking for someone to tell them what they want to hear. I'll find them. Hey, by the way, you can't find them. What do you want to hear? There's somebody out there that twist a Bible verse and got some degree and they got some website and they got some YouTube channel and they will tell you exactly what you want to hear right now. And you'll feel validated because the pastor said this. The apostle said this. This teacher said this. They got a degree from this. They got a church over here. They've got a book. Guess what? Anybody can write a book. I am testimony to that. Okay. Anybody can do it. Anybody can have a... Listen, you cannot believe everything that you read on the internet. Abraham Lincoln said that once. Did y'all know that? Okay, some of y'all get that later. Okay, you cannot trust everything on the internet. Just because someone has a website, does that mean it's accurate? No. So, so what does he say? He goes, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What a st- 
statement. They're going to turn away from listening to the truth, the truth of God's word. What will they wander into? Myths. Just made up stuff. Tells you what you want to hear, what you want to do in life. Now, you turn over to the next page here, and I want to talk about the importance of leadership and how this relates to us, uh, especially as we think about the coming election. Here's what I want you to show. In the history of the Old Testament, after King Solomon, God's people gradually moved further from living like God's people, right? Throughout the Old Testament, we see this in a, in a big way, but especially after King Solomon. Um, first three kings in Israel's history, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Three kings, and what happens as soon as Solomon's done? Nation is divided. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And things change very, very quickly. You've got this little diagram there on your page that um, I, got, I got from a website. You can trust it, though. I found it on the Internet. Um, but here are the two columns, the list of kings from the nation of Israel and Judah after Solomon's leadership. And what I want you to notice is that the kings that were bad and evil are in gray. And the kings that were good and tried to live for God are the ones that are listed in blue. Is that depressing to anybody? What do you notice about Israel? Not a single one. Not a single godly king after Solomon. In Judah, you got some, about a half and half there. And you probably know some of the names like Jehoshaphat. Um, Hezekiah and Josiah are three of the more familiar ones, but they're not even that familiar to you, right? But just look at that and just wrestle with it for a second. That... If you look at all of these stuff, I mean, from the 900s down to the 500s of all these different kings that ruled, only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of those kings actually tried to live for the Lord. The rest of them were just pagan, unapologetic kings who did not know how to blush. And if you read through Kings and Chronicles, you just, it's funny because it's, it has a spoiler alert for every beginning of every king. It'll tell you what they're, who they're going to be like before they even do a thing. Because oh, this king was after so-and-so. He was really awful. And let me tell you a story of why he was really awful. Or, hey, this guy actually was decent. Let me tell you a reason why he was decent. But they're going to, spoiler alert, tell you exactly about him. But what's interesting if you read through the history of Israel and Judah, if you've ever read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, let me tell you what's challenging. Is you're reading through it, and it goes, you're reading about this king who over in Israel, and then it's going to say, oh, and by the way, at the same time, this king was over here in Judah. And you're like, well, which one am I at? And you're bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you're going through centuries within pages, just moving along. Um, but this is what's interesting that, that Kings and Chronicles are going to teach you. The majority of the citizens would gravitate toward the morality of their current king. In Israel and Judah's day, the majority of the citizens would gravitate toward the morality of their current king. So how healthy spiritually do you think Israel was from 900 to 700? Horrible. Horrible. How healthy was Judah? It just depended. Now, does that mean that throughout all these times that there was no one that was standing up and following the Lord? No, it just means that the majority of the culture went the way of the king. And let me show you a couple verses to prove that. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 16 says, And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and what? Made Israel to sin. Now, I, I, I suppose that Jeroboam could actually force someone to sin. I don't think that's what it's meaning to do, right? Like, hey, I'm going to take your hand and you're going to steal this from this person. I think what he's doing is 
saying he set up the temples, he set up the idols, he allowed sin to go rampant. Go for it. Have at it. Um, and kept biblical faithfulness at bay. And so it's interesting, it says, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sent and made Israel to sin. Uh, reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, where he says, if any of you would cause it, one of these young ones to sin, remember what he said? It'd be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. What happens when someone has a millstone around their neck and they get put in water? They die. <laughs> They, they sink, they die. And you go, that sounds extreme. Is it? Because I'll be honest. Sometimes I think about the horrific pain that a physical death can cause a family, but I also know that sometimes there's a greater pain. Causing someone to cause generation after generation just to walk away from the Lord by their example. And so Jesus says, it's, it's probably better off without it happening than you just continue to leave these people in sin. And so... Here's Jeroboam, he's sinning, and he's causing the whole nation to sin by his example. Uh, this is how another, so and you go through one king, another king, another king, you get 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. And it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Oh, goodness, right? This is just telling you, you think those guys are bad? Oh, they were JV compared to old Ahab, right? And, and yet, so we got Ahab, so this is a sign. This is how most of these kings are represented. And one of the rare occasions, you get a good king, you got 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Now, I want you to say about that. Gloria, how old are you? Eight. <laughs> Would you like to be the queen of the United States of America? I think you could do better than some people who want the job right now. I'm just going to tell you, okay, I think I would put in your hands a bit. Listen, I think Gloria would be a good ruler for us, a good leader for us, okay? I'm all for it. Uh, if you were just, you had to be 35, though, to run here. But I'm just saying, if she was running, I, I have her, I'm confident in her ability. Eight years old, people. Besides Gloria, would that frighten you? Okay, it frightened me, right? Gloria, I'd be okay with it. Somebody else, I don't know. Josiah is eight years old. That's what it says about him, verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. So, how's the description? This is the good description. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Catch this. Not what was right in the eyes of the people or in the eyes of him, right? I didn't even connect this until just now. What was it said about judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet here is this king doing what is right in not his eyes, God's eyes. This is where it's happening. It's not about what you think is right, what God thinks is right. That's where it's at. He walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. There's a pretty good description. And so some of you know what happened in Josiah's reign. One day, if you go to that passage in 2 Kings chapter 22, it says that he sent somebody and they're cleaning out the temple and all of a sudden they find this ancient book. It's got dust on it. And they go, hey, we, uh, we read this book in there. We think it might interest you, Josiah. He goes, well, read it to me. They go, okay, you sure? He's like, yeah. Blow it off. And he starts reading the book of Genesis. Josiah's never heard it before. He gets to Exodus. He reads Leviticus. He reads Numbers. He reads Deuteronomy. And Josiah's response is, we in trouble <laughs> because it said we shouldn't have any type of idol and there's one and there's one and there's one it says we shouldn't have any type of union with any guy and we got one right over there and we shouldn't be doing these acts and worship and it's going on in the temple 
what are we going to do? And he prays and asks the Lord. He said, what, what's going to happen? Now look on your timeline here. You see Josiah, where he's at in Judah's history? Close to the end. Close to Daniel. <laughs> Close to the Babylonian exile. And Josiah cries out to God and says, God, what's going to happen? And he said, I've had enough with these people. And I'm going to bring in a pagan nation to come wipe them out. And Josiah says, please, we will turn. He causes the entire nation to pray and repent. And God says, it's still going to happen. Listen, this is real for where we've been studying. The Babylonian exile is coming up. But Josiah, because you've been repentant, you won't have to live to see it. It's not going to happen in your reign. It will happen a little bit later. So what's Josiah do? He doesn't go to the beach. <laughs> he didn't go get in his hammock and go, whew, well, that's good. You know what Josiah does? He starts taking down every single temple that he can, every single idol that he can. Starts taking, like literally, the priests who were leading the people astray, either imprisoning them or killing them. The idols that were erected to different gods, he, he literally, he takes them down, he breaks them up, he burns them, and then he literally desecrates on the ashes. That's dead on dead on dead on dead. Okay, this is like literally getting to the lowest place. And this is the thing that blows my mind about Josiah. I'm going, Josiah, you're not going to have to deal at all <coughs> with any type of punishment. And Josiah said, <coughs> I don't want them to have to deal with it either. Excuse me. <coughs> he didn't want anyone else to have to deal with it. So even though God's judgment wouldn't come upon him during that time, he did everything he could to make sure no one else could sin even after him. So it's almost like Josiah is getting his place to say, even though this may not happen under my watch, what if I can make some changes so it's harder for other people to sin? So he makes sweeping changes, sweeping changes throughout the entire nation. And then <clears throat> it says this. I, I wrote this down, but I mentioned it this morning and today. The greatest of prophets came about during the darkest of times. When you look at these <coughs> kings, does anybody remember who Elijah was speaking to? King Ahab. Left side, Israel, about seventh or eighth down. Is there any good thing happening right there? <laughs> Elijah. And Elisha after him. And so I look at Israel's history, and it's overwhelming, and yet... If we were to categorize the prophets unto one prophet, right? Jesus is on the earth. <clears throat> Got Peter, James, and John beside him. Transfigured. And who does he see beside, who do they, who do they see beside Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Law and the prophets. And who's the one prophet that is the symbol of all prophets? Elijah. Under one of the worst kings. And so this is what I do believe. <clears throat> I do believe that once something so beautiful is that if you look at the history of the church, sometimes the purification of the church happens in the darkest of times. It does. The early church, if you sign up to go to Peter's church or John's church or James' church, you know what you sign up for? Possible imprisonment or death. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm changing this church because of music style. <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't worried about that, right? If you sign up, you're serious about this. You know what? If you go back to the history of the early church, you know when evangelism started to tank and people stopped really going on mission? 
when all of a sudden Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Supported by the government. And what happened? And the government took over the church. The church got watered down. And then all of a sudden we start seeing abuses that would turn eventually into something called the Catholic Church. That literally, you see what I'm saying here? That sometimes, and once again, I'm not asking in my prayers, God, please persecute us. Please allow this government to come start, you know, blocking the doors and taking our stuff. I'm not asking for that. But I am saying, if those days come, I don't have to be fearful because God even works there. Sometimes he does work through Josiah's, and sometimes he works through Elijah's. Either way, he gets work done because that's what God does. And so, greatest of prophets that we know about came about during the darkest of times. And here's what I know. Authorities can limit the outlets for sin, but no leader can legislate righteousness. Okay? Authorities can limit the outlets for sin, but no leader can legislate righteousness. So let's take my buddies, the overcomers, again. Uh, If they give up their car keys and they're dropped off at the Miracle Hill Overcomer Center... They cannot stroll down to the kitchen and go in the refrigerator and find alcohol, can they? They ain't going to get it. The only way you're going to get it is if you leave this place, and you're on your own at that point, right? They're going to make sure you can't get it. Um, I I talk with different people. Sometimes they'll talk about um, if you want to view something unholy, ungodly, can you do it? Sure. Anybody can do it. But sometimes as parents, you can say, guess what? You're not going to have a TV in your room. Now, I can't change your heart because of that, but I am going to make sure it's going to be harder for you to be exposed to those things. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So authority can limit the outlets for sin. Josiah can take down the idol. He cannot remove idolatry from the heart. You see what I'm saying? So he can take down the idol, but he can't remove idolatry from the heart. So even if we had a Josiah or a Hezekiah on the ticket... While they can make sweeping reforms for the United States of America, they can't guarantee that all of a sudden America becomes this glorified Christian nation. That has to happen here, right? Not on paper. Now, if you were to give me the option, do I want a leader um, that's making decisions? Give a great example. Would you rather have a conservative or a liberal person filling the Supreme Court seat right now? Okay. I know where everybody in this room is going to be like, well, duh. If you've got the option, go that route. 100% agree. It's, it's a no-brainer for me. Absolutely, that's what you'd want to do. But as we have seen even this year, sometimes even the conservative justices don't always vote the way we expected them to vote, do we? So if we only rely on that system and we sit back and go, well, they're going to do the work, guess what, folks? We've taken ourselves out of the game. And even if morality was legislated, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. Now, I'd I'd rather, once again, I would love for abortion to be banned. I would love for thoughts on marriage and gender and all these different kinds of things. You literally have parents right now in certain states being banned from going and taking their kids as eight-year-olds to the doctor and deciding which gender they're going to associate with. Okay? Like this, so, so let me explain what's happening the government has more rights for your child than you do, okay? This is a problem, folks, okay? So if I have the opportunity to put somebody in an authority that's going to put in a certain way, of course I would rather go that way, but don't ever 
differentiate between this, that you don't ever think that just by getting the godly people in office or conservative people in office, therefore everyone's going to be obviously Christian. It doesn't work that way. It reduces the outlet for sin. You take the alcoholic out of the bar, it's going to be harder for them to get drunk. But if they want to get drunk, they'll find a way. Someone's looking at pornography, you take away all their media stuff, they'll still find a way. But you're reducing the outlets for it. So the best authorities, Josiah, what did he do? He reduced the outlets for sin, but he couldn't change the heart. He couldn't change the heart. And so while we would all prefer for God to work through godly rulers, we can never forget that he can still work in the absence of them. He's done it throughout history. I would rather have godly, God-fearing rulers at every level. But if we don't, God's work still go forward. Look at Daniel. Look at Moses. Look at Joseph. Look, look at Jesus. In the midst of all this insanity and what takes place, God's work still got done. And so as our culture continues to slide into immorality, we can never excuse the church from doing what we were called to do, work to influence individual hearts. That's where it's at, folks. I would love policies to change. I would love regulations to change. But at the end of it, if Josiah was running for office and he instituted all types of reforms, it does not mean that we have their hearts. We just got the rules. And what did um, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they would talk about, uh, I'm going to, especially Ezekiel, he said, I'm going to remove that heart of stone, right? I'm going to give him a heart of flesh. Jeremiah says, it used to be that the laws were written on tablets, but now I'm going to move it to where it's written on their hearts. And that's what we're after. I'd love for God's laws to be written on tablets and be enforced. Okay, that's fine. But that does not change. Parents, you know this. Uh, Rules kept your kids from getting into some sin, right? But it couldn't change their heart. God had to do that. So with this, as we think through what is this call as a church, we have to make sure that we're working to influence individual hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for a chance that we have to be able to um, think through this legacy of kings and different people throughout Scripture and, and the complexity of what takes place in our own hearts and minds about um, while we all would have godly leaders in place and and, and writing um, godly laws and, and enforcing them and, and to base their decisions on the power of your word. I would rather have that any day. If that doesn't happen, God, I'm still responsible to be faithful to you. Even if I'm living in a culture that's doing everything that seems right in their own eyes, let us be the type of people that live according to what is right in your eyes more than anything else. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.